Gresham College presents the EU referendum debate. Should the UK leave or remain? The questions and answers. With Dominic Grieve, MP, Matthew Elliott, Sir Geoffrey Nice QC and Professor Daniel Hodson, chaired by Professor Sir Richard Evans. Uh, undecided, 16 or 11 percent. Leave, 24 or 17 percent. And remain, 100 or 71 percent. Make of that what you will, but I think we have an audience that, at least before the debate began, uh, was very much overwhelmingly in favour of Remain. Now, it says here, uh, 6.45, summing up by Professor Sir Richard Evans, but fortunately, they've all overrun, so uh, there's no time for me to do the summing up. So, <laughs> which would have been completely impossible, of course. So now we have about half an hour for contributions from the floor. So could we, uh, uh, could we maybe light up the, uh, light up the lecture theatre? There is, I hope, a roving mic, which uh, will be handed around. So if you raise your hand, um, I can, uh, we can uh, wait until the mic comes to you. And then please uh, ask a question, or if you want to make a point, Keep it very brief so other people have a chance to, to get their say. So the first point, uh, over there, uh, uh, halfway up on the right, gentleman with the white hair. And of course, um, I can also invite our speakers to respond if you want to address them directly. Well, first, well, mine is Robert Whitfield. I'd like to say thanks for your question and the organisers for this event. We're privileged. Thanks very much. I'd like to thank Matthew's, thank you for Matthew's uh, assessment of the Turkish... Uh, Population, in fact, you've just inflated it by in the reach of 20%. And also, uh, Professor Hodgson, I'd have to say, his stance this evening is in contrast with the chairman of the City of London's Policy and Resources Committee, who has the opposite view. But uh, the, the further one is that up to, uh, up to 30 years to the end of 1945, we had two world wars which began in Europe. Since then, we've had relative peace. If we stayed in the European Union, wouldn't it be the case that Britain's soft power could have a great influence on the rest of the European Union and the future? Thank you very much indeed. I think we should leave Turkey out of it since there's absolutely no chance whatsoever that Turkey will enter the EU. So, next question. Can I take issue with that? Yeah, the back, yeah. Gentleman at the back. Gentleman at the back with white shirts. So, let's collect a few comments yeah. and then I'll come back to you. Yes, sir. Um, this is a question to the panel. Uh, Daniel Hodson resided over the demise of the Bund Future Trading on Life between 93 and 98, one of life's most successful contracts. That contract was launched in London in 1989 and, as I said, was one of the most successful contracts that was traded on life. They lost the business to the Deutsche Terminbourse when Frankfurt decided that they wanted to compete. Look where life is today, owned by an American conglomerate, and look where the DTB is potentially bidding for the London Stock Exchange. Why do, does anyone on the panel think that with management like that, we can outcompete the Germans from the outside rather than being on the inside? Thank you very much. Let me just add to the first speaker, of course... I, I think the idea, as a historian, I can say the idea that EU has kept the peace is, is really not very, not very persuasive. As we said, it's NATO that's kept the peace, but also 
Of course, the EU is a product of a desire for peace. It's the other way around. It's the, the desire to keep the peace starting between France and Germany that has created the EU and kept it going. And, uh, would you like to come back, any of you, on this? On this? Yeah. Well, I don't want to spend too time, much time talking about life, but I think that it hasn't actually altered the fact that, that London is by far the, well, significantly the greatest uh, financial centre in, in London and arguably in the world. There were specific reasons why uh, that contract went to the DTB, and they were to do with difficulties in terms of cooperatives. Uh, and I've lectured on that, actually, and you can look it up. You can actually watch the lecture and find out why I thought that that was going to happen. I'm just plugging Gresham yes, College there. All promised. our lectures are available on uh, and, Gresham and, uh, and, website. And I got myself in trouble, actually, after I left for doing that. Um, but, but I think it is a great shame, and I totally agree with you, and I think it was an incompetent move for the London Stock Exchange not to merge with life when it had the opportunity. So that was a mistake. But I suspect that markets are changing. The question is, where are the decision makers going to be? Where are the human beings going to be? And there are all sorts of good reasons. This gentleman clearly knows something about the derivative market. If I mention the word cross-multi-currency, multi-product, cross-margining, which you simply can't do in the Eurozone because you're not dealing in dollars, you're not dealing in sterling and other currencies, you will see why, for instance, clearing, at the end of the day, has to be here in order to provide the, uh, the competitive situation that it requires, okay. as an example. Okay, thank, thank you. Dominic? Very briefly, soft power, yes, the United Kingdom exercises a great deal of soft power in Europe, and it's very beneficial, as I hinted at, and lots of countries within the EU look to Britain for leadership in those areas. And the soft power goes beyond that. I mean, I mentioned earlier about cooperation on security, and I'm afraid I just have to take issues. Sir Richard Dearlove is a very distinguished public servant, but he retired in 2004. And the changes that have taken place since then in the levels of cooperation for counter-terrorism, for obvious reasons, have been massive. I can see that with my own eyes from my own role, and on top of that, it comes as no surprise that the immediate past heads of both MI5 and MI6 take a diametrically different view from Sir Richard. I also can't think of a single case where the European Union has interfered or meant that we cannot protect ourselves against <coughs> terrorism. On the contrary, the fact that we have access to the Schengen database and we're not in Schengen is in fact the surest protection that we have and the Home Secretary has successfully removed over 2,000, about to, successfully removes about 2,000 EU citizens each year who she considers their presence is not conducive to the public good. On the second point, yes, of course, there are going to be some things we're going to win and some things we're going to lose. If the city makes a mistake, it may lose out, but overall the city has benefited massively from EU membership. And that the whole position which we enjoy is probably the thing which I think is most threatened from our removal because of the uncertainties it engenders and the risk, and it's all about risk assessment, that the other countries in Europe will exploit this, whatever the deal we strike, to progressively exclude us from the benefits of the single market, without which the city cannot continue to perform its European role. And that's why the French businessman was saying to me, quite frankly, France, the French business sector did see many advantages to them from us leaving. Matthew? I'm not going to try and debate uh, Dominic on um, intelligence. Um, it's obviously in, in a very distinguished position, but I think it's worth saying that um, also on the Intelligence Committee is uh, Gisela Stewart, who's chairman of Vote Leave. So I think it's fair to say that there is a split of opinion in the intelligence community about what's best for the UK. On the question of Turkey, so I think we should bring Turkey into this. 
Um, just a fortnight ago, every member government of the EU signed a document calling for the acceleration of Turkey's membership of the EU. And uh, just a few years ago, the Prime Minister spoke about um, paving a road from Ankara to Brussels and its government policy and Labour Party policy for Turkey to join the EU. So when people say, oh, Turkey's not going to join, well, why did they sign a document just a few weeks back saying they want to accelerate the process, A, and B, why are they allowing visa-free access for Turks from this summer? Right, let's carry on another round. Down here, madam. And the, at the, the back of the front, as it were. Hi, yeah, so I've got kind of two points to make. The first one was actually when Sir Geoffrey said at the start, oh, we voted to join the EU back in the 1970s. I wasn't born in the 1970s, so quite honestly, I had nothing to do with that vote. And I think, it's, I think it'd be silly for us to not take this opportunity in order to vote whether we vote in or vote out, because um, it's not going to come around again. Yeah. And my second one is actually to do with security. Um, I know it keeps coming up, we keep talking about it, but does anyone honestly think that if we leave the EU, they're going to go, right, okay, cool, global terrorism is, as I said, a global threat. We're not going to tell you anything, you're on your own. Does anyone honestly think that's going to happen? That's sad. No. Okay, thank you. Um, Colin Lowe, House of Lords. Um, I think Matthew gave the game away, really, when he said that the uh, Prime Minister, uh, speaking as an individual, used to be uh, against uh, the EU, but now that he has the responsibilities and the vision of Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, and he has to, uh, he, what he has to take, take his, his prime consideration must be the, the best interests of the, of the country as a whole. He takes a, a, a broader view and is much more sympathetic to remaining in the, in the, in the European Union. That seems to me to give the game away. Um, and um, uh, Matthew repeated, repeated that point when he said that the Prime Minister was once pro-Turkey and is now against Turkey. Um, he, he's obviously seen the uh, error of his ways uh, when he has the broader responsibilities of, of, of Prime Minister. I think that, uh, that Ma Matthew was um, uh, displayed typical leave paranoia about the European Union and could see nothing but... Um, uh, sinister conspiracies to take over the United Kingdom. And Daniel, on the other hand, was, uh, as Dominic, in Dominic's words, was fancifully over-optimistic about how uh, the UK would thrive outside the, uh, outside the European Union uh, on the basis of practically no evidence that he cited uh, to, to give support to that view. Thank you. Um, I, I am from Italy. In Italy at the university, I have studied that there is... Uh, a big difference between uh, uh, the legal system of continental Europe uh, based uh, on the Napoleonic Code and uh, the English system of common law. Uh, a question for Dominic Grieve. Don't you fear that in the long run, the sentences of the European Court of Justice could destroy the English system of common law? Well, I just point out that Scotland is different. Mm. You mentioned the English system of common law, but Scotland, of course, has a European-style system. Let's have another question down here in the front. 
Hi, I'd just like to ask, would anyone like to comment on the potential effects of Brexit on the Irish peace process and raising the status of that border to an international border, a hard border between the UK and the whole of Europe? Very good question. Shall we just then come back with people? Somebody like to start? Dominic? Happy to start. Um, security. I'm very careful, in, I hope, in the way I chose my words about how security is managed and the fact that I accepted that it would be possible under certain circumstances to replace some of the EU frameworks on security with bilateral agreements. But it's important to understand that sharing intelligence is not something where you just say, oh, I'm going to share intelligence tomorrow. There are a number of rather key issues about it. One is that your intelligence is going to be respected and not divulged. Secondly, that it's not going to be misused. One of the issues with the EU, we have to face up to it, is that some countries, members of the EU, despite the fact their standards may be rising, still don't meet exactly the standards I would wish for cooperation in all areas of policing and intelligence. And the one mechanism we have for improving that are, in fact, EU structures. That's what Europol's about. That's what the Schengen data is about and the rules that underpin it. So actually, I happen to believe that the EU is a very important lever in improving the standards which make the cooperation better. And it's for that reason that I think the EU plays an important role. Now, doubtless, if we leave, the EU could continue to play part of that role. But the fact is we wouldn't be providing the input in the same way. We would be, relatively speaking, outside players. So I think it is a negative. But I want to emphasize it's not a negative which is ne necessarily ca not capable of being overcome. And if I may say, I'm very, very careful not to put words into Gisela's mouth, but I don't think I've ever heard Gisela Stewart suggest that our security would be enhanced by leaving the EU. I simply make that point. Anybody else um, want if to we, come back? Uh, then just Sorry? on the other, the Napoleon Code. Um, we've lived with a, with a, 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 a Scottish uh, civil law, Roman law system, and actually the, the, the mixing has been very profitable to us. Of course, if the European Court of Justice were to become predatory, really seriously, sort of exceed its remit, it could be a problem. In which case, I'd probably come along and say to you, I think it's time to invoke Article 50. But I just don't see this as a realistic prospect at the moment. Our common law system manages very well alongside the European uh, law legal system. I accept it's largely derived from Napoleonic code principles. When I go to the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg, I have to adapt. But actually, we do it quite well. Um, I sometimes think that I'd like to see some common law principles of certainly a process imported. We may have an influence in doing it. Ireland, yes, I agree. There's a very serious issue relating to Ireland. Um, and the Irish government has made quite clear its serious concerns about both the Northern Ireland Peace Agreement and what would happen to the common travel area. It would be a difficult issue to resolve. And I have to say, if we wish to continue with the common travel area, which is massively to our mutual advantage, it raises issues, if I may say, about this extraordinary control mechanism which is suddenly supposed to come in, by which we're supposed to prevent the immigrants we don't want. In any case, I don't understand this argument. European immigrants are coming to this country to take, do work. The percentage who are not is tiny. So if we're going to live in this wonderful world post-Brexit, where in fact the UK economy is booming, as Professor Hodgson has said... We're going to want immigrants. And where are they going to come from? I would have thought we'd probably be better off taking them from Spain and France and Poland and the countries from which they're currently coming. So I don't believe there's going to be this control. Australia is a boom economy. 
And it is actually, despite all its control processes, taking more immigrants per annum per percentage of its population than we do here. Right. Geoffrey. No, the Code Napoleon will not defeat the common law. And it's as well to bear in mind that lawyers are experts just as brain surgeons are experts. And when they meet across the different countries of Europe, they're not there to be predatory in the way that Dominic said might happen with certain consequences. They're there to achieve the right answers in difficult problems that are common to all of us. And if you look at the legal processes from standing back and seeing how they develop, in fact, it's a question of sharing expertise and learning from one another in both the ECHR, which we're not concerned with, but also in the European Court of Justice. Anybody else want to come in? Daniel. I just want to make a, 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 an economic point. I mean, I understand <coughs> what Dominic is saying, and it is certainly true that uh, immigrants have come in and they have as I've said, over a 1,000 years, helped our economy. What he did not say is that our post-Brexit, we were the ability to control our borders, not close our borders, but control our borders. For instance, in the city, it is now <coughs> there are masses of talented people who work in New York who can't get, can't get visas here. There are masses of people who want to come and study in our university. Universities are bellyaching about the fact that they're losing students because they can't get them visas. And Why? because those visas are being taken by people from the European Union. We're not saying you don't do it. We're simply, we're simply saying it will then become a matter uh, for British... Sorry, Daniel, something. that's simply not true. EU, EU, EU students do not need visas. They count as home students. Well, excuse me, can I just point... I have a very specific case in point. My son-in-law is an Argentinian. He won a scholarship to Bristol University to do a master's. He is married to my daughter who is uh, uh, of working age. And it took him about six months to get a visa, including travelling twice... Uh, yes, to... but with respect, that has nothing at all to do with the EU. Well, uh, well, but in any case, it, I, I'm, yes, very, does, I'm but... very pleased to hear... Uh, the first time I've ever heard the argument that leaving the EU would actually increase immigration. Um, Matthew. <laughs> um, a few points. On the um, security point and Gisela's position, she has made the case that um, leaving the EU would increase Britain's security, and we'll be doing a speech on it again very soon. And just briefly on security, it's worth noting the other new institution coming down the line, and I'm probably accused of paranoia by Lord Lowe, but uh, President Juncker has recently talked about creating a European spy agency, so that's down the line to come very soon. On the question of um, uh, British law and the threat to common <coughs> law and what have you, uh, we've got two very, very eminent um, QCs here. But I think it's worth pointing out that on the Vote Leave um, board, we have both the current Lord Chancellor and the Lord Chancellor previously, Chris Grayling, who both see the ECJ as being a huge threat to what's going on in the UK. And finally, on the Irish point, um, the Irish peace process is a very important uh, point. Um, again, both Theresa Villiers, the current Secretary of State for Ireland, and Owen Paterson, the previous Secretary of State of Ireland, both believe that uh, the peace in Ireland won't be affected by Britain leaving. Right, I think we can have a last round of questions and comments, and then we'll come back to you for summing up. So, anyone else? Yes, at the back there. On the... Yeah. Hello, good evening. Um, I'm French, uh, although I look a little bit uh, Celt because uh, I have a Celt's origin a long time ago, probably from uh, Cornwall or Wales. 
So that links to the fact that European people are very much uh, mixed. My question is, but it's more of a remark. Uh, first to start, I have a great respect for everyone in the, everyone's opinion in the room, and it's not my role to give an opinion because uh, my knowledge are very short on that, so I definitely respect the two sides. But there's one thing that we haven't um, uh, talked about is the uh, English people, or British people, sorry, living in the European Union, because I know uh, there are probably over 300,000. I'm not sure if... Good million. point. Two million. Yeah, there, there are over 300,000 people. I, I'm not no, sure no, if it's my... Two, it's, two, it's over two million um, British citizens live in, uh, on the yeah. continent in So my, my question is more of a technical aspect. What, what would happen to those people? Because I know right. the biggest group is in France. Uh, we, we all know that a lot of retired people uh, move to France or Portugal when they, they retire for, for having a more, probably more space or... Um, so what would happen to them in terms of um, uh, rights to, to stay in the European Union? Okay. Is there any option right. for... Very good question. Thank you. Nobody, nobody seems to uh, discuss it in the public debate, but it's a very good question. Further back there. Um, hello. Thank you, everyone, for your views tonight. Really interesting. <coughs> I'm an Australian solicitor, and I work in the City of London, and an observation on the point that difficulties for non-EU people to get visas... I work surrounded by Americans and Canadians and Australians as well as English people. But I, I confess I may be repeating a point we've, uh, a question we've had already this evening, but I would like to put it to the, uh, the Leave uh, team again uh, on the question of the economic impact of leaving the EU. I'm yet to hear a, a response on how it would make us more prosperous to leave. Sure. Thank you. Further back. <laughs> Good evening, everybody. Um, I actually uh, wanted to come in sort of Daniel's defense a little bit. Um, I mean, it's been agreed before as well, and it's been proven that immigration has been a sort of a net positive to the British economy. Um, my question is that uh, the, uh, the, the percentage, the highest percentage of immigrants coming into the, into the, into the UK are mostly of a younger age, I think, and uh, sort of graduates from countries where the economies are not doing so well. Uh, I'm originally from India, and I have a work permit to work here. But when I, when I apply for a job here, to get the work permit, I have to prove that I can effectively add to the economy. I have to have a job that pays a certain amount. And then I have to go through resident sort of labor market tests as well. So it's much more controlled for somebody from outside EU. And when uh, somebody from, I don't want to name any particular country, but they want to come from within the U EU, to work in the UK, they don't have to go through these tests. Uh, so it's it's just a question from not from my perspective, from from the perspective of the British people. Would they be more happy to have somebody come in who goes through all these tests, or somebody who doesn't have to go through these tests? Thank you. Okay. Any more questions or points? Uh, yes, just a little bit further down. So uh, just a point on economics, I think Dominic was saying that the British economy has flourished since 1973 and since joining the European community. Uh, I come from a country that has also had a flourishing economy since that year uh, because that was the year that Australia left the protectionist imperial trade preference system. <laughs> and um, indeed, on the point of economic performance, I think... The Australian Treasury predicted a hit of 3% of GDP every year as a result of the tariff wall going up around uh, Britain. Nothing of the kind happened. 
the Australian economy has been one of the best performing on earth since that year. And I think that's, that's a salutary lesson in the accuracy of uh, economic forecasts. Okay, so um, anyone else? Anyone else want to any points? Gentlemen over here, uh, the first row at the back. There we are. Good evening. I want to know whether this figure that's been banded about since the campaign began of something like 350 million pounds being the net contribution Britain will make. Not net. No, that, well, I guess the simple Gross. answer. People somehow conveniently forget Mrs. Thatcher's famous rebate. I was so going to a come lot to that. that. Comes back. Because I heard and on then the... there's a lot more yeah. comes back in terms... I'll address right. that point. In terms of yeah. uh, agricultural subsidies. Well, I was going to ask... My question was, how does it relate to another figure which has been uh, brought about called uh, a figure of 161 million which is the contribution Britain makes after taking, for example, Mrs. Thatcher's um, um, position she took many years ago to reduce, the, to reduce the contribution we had to make to the EU. Um, is it 161 million, the right <coughs> figure, or is it nearer 350 million? I'll take that point. Okay, so sure. uh, I think we've got some broad general points, big questions, and some specific points. So... Can I ask now our four speakers to deal with them uh, in the next six minutes? <laughs> Dominic, would you like to stop? I don't know what's going to have to happen to British people in the EU. Doubtless, the Brexiters want to negotiate some package which enables them to remain there. But, I mean, that rather highlights the complexities of the issue because the fact is their status there at the moment is governed. Their status there is governed by the EU treaty. Now, it's true that there are elements of the Vienna Convention, Correct. which means that they shouldn't be immediately chucked out. But it doesn't mean that their long-term residency there is guaranteed at all. I mean, these are some of the complex, detailed issues which, in my view, are going to need to be thrashed out. It may be to everybody's mutual advantage that it should continue. But it does highlight the degree of interdependence and involvement which we now have. Can I then turn to the issue about um, visas? I accept that it may be that one of the reasons why... The, ultimately, the EU operates on the basis there is freedom of movement. Um, I find that benign because it seems to me that we are getting people coming into this country to fill jobs and do jobs which need to be filled. And it's true that they get, in a sense, a priority... Uh, in consideration before people start looking whether there are jobs that need to be filled from elsewhere. But ultimately, if somebody is suitable for a job from outside the EU, from India, Canada, or wherever else it is, they will get a work permit. They just will. And uh, it's perfectly evident that that's the case. So, as I say, I believe that this is one of the great red herrings of this debate, because ultimately we have to take a decision as a nation whether we think we need it is to our national advantage to have jobs filled. Now, I accept there are big issues about global population growth. About 100 million people in the Sahel and, and the Middle East who may be on the move. But I don't actually think leaving the EU is going to have any impact on those issues and the potential challenges it poses to us in the United Kingdom or our ability to meet those at all. Currently, these are people who we can exclude under the Schengen arrangements, even if they get into the EU area. 
Um, Australia, I have no doubt Australia took the right decision. Australia is a huge country with primary produce, uh, primary goods uh, 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 production. It did the right thing. We are a complex trading nation with large levels of mutual interdependence, and I think that we have benefited from EU membership. Lastly, I'm going to leave it to Matthew to sort out his previous comments about the £350 million. But I'll only say this. If I go into a pub and buy a pint of beer with a £20 note and get change, am I spending £20 or am I spending the amount that I have paid minus the change? That is the simple, blunt extent to which this statement of £350 million is simply untrue. Indeed, it's totally untrue because we don't even pay over £350 million and get it back. It never actually gets paid in the first place. It is a figure from which the deductions are made and payment then occurs. I mean, I don't know. £8.5 billion, which is what we're actually spending per annum on EU membership, it's not an insignificant sum of money, but it's now been used to save, prop up the defence of our country, save the NHS, provide for more schools. I'm not sure where it all... It sort of it must be like, like one of those magic things that expands. The truth is, it is a tiny percentage of our total government expenditure. And the question that has to be resolved is, is that sum of money getting it back, because we will get it back if we leave, is that going to be outweighed by the financial losses and the economic cost of even a small recession? I can assure you, even if there's a blip recession, that money will be gone in the blink of an eye, and the cost to us will be well in excess of it. Matthew. Well, Dominic, being both a QC and a parliamentarian, has used all of the six minutes. Um, <laughs> but I will try and sort of summarise some of those points. Sorry. 350 million to start off with. So, yes, you've got the rebate there. As George Osborne said to the Treasury Select Committee, the rebate is based on a discussion with the European uh, Commission. It is not guaranteed, quote, a discussion, it is not guaranteed. So, therefore, it could go at any point in time. As the head of the Stronger In campaign, the Remain campaign, Will Straw wrote a pamphlet for IPPR talking about abolishing the rebate. So I think it's worth actually looking at the gross figure, and we're always very careful to talk about the gross figure um, and always point out the net figure as well. On the different other points, Brits living in the EU. Um, Dominic very kindly talked about the Vienna Convention, but this is a bit of a scare story. I remember Dominic first chucking it into The Guardian a few months back. If you actually look at the Charter of Fundamental Rights, which I presume he likes as part of the European treaties, that will actually prevent the other member states from chucking Brits out living in those member states. The Charter of Fundamental Rights would pre uh, pre prevent that from happening. And indeed, I don't think it would happen because we'd come to a mutually uh, agreement, just like we wouldn't want to chuck out the French people living in the UK and what have you. On the point about the economic um, impact, I'll perhaps use this as my summary. I think the choice facing the British people in this referendum is not between the sort of status quo versus out. It's really between essentially two futures for the UK. And uh, just to sort of put the top line for the case for leave, I would say the risks of, re of remain, a remain vote, are greater than the risks of a leave vote. And when it comes to Britain's uh, prosperity, 
I think the Eurozone is um, basically going down the pan, and I don't think it's a good idea for the British economy to be part of the EU when that happens. Thank you very much. Admirably succinct. Geoffrey. Just one short point. The European Convention and indeed the United Nations uh, Universal Declaration were all aimed at identifying human rights of an essential kind that would perhaps save us from countries ever again falling into the lunacy that had driven the Second World War unhappily rooted in Germany so far as we are concerned. The creation of the European Union has as one of its underlying purposes, as has been pointed out, the continued preservation of peace, certainly amongst the member states. The charter of the European Union, which um, supports the European Court of Justice, has similar principles to those, very similar and identical in part, to those of the European Convention. Part of this project, like it or not, is aimed at saving us from ourselves. And the lady who said that she was born after it came into being, and isn't she allowed really to vote it out on perhaps on an annual basis, should bear in mind that she was born into a society that was working on the principle of saving us from ourselves in part, as well as serving our economic good. And here's my question to you. If you vote to leave, part of what you will be doing will be rejecting your immediate trans-channel neighbours. Once you have done that, ask yourself how much easier it may be for factions within a separate nation to reject some other groups of within that nation. There are reasons external and internal why it is dangerous to leave the Union that has indeed preserved our peace for so many years. Daniel, do you like... Well, I think I'm just going to deal with that one because I think that's a bit of outrageous scaremongering. You suggest that if, we're, if we have our parliamentary sovereignty back in some way, it's going to breed the rise of neo-Nazis or something like that. That is absolute rubbish. Uh, but I, what I do want to do, if, just in my 30 seconds, if I may, promised, <laughs> is just to say why is it going to be a good thing economically? Well, first of all, a starting point is the average of all predictions, which is actually open Europe's, which is a tad under the current level of GNP, about 1%. Not that much, frankly, in, in, in domestic terms, in domestic economy terms. But the reason why we will thrive will be because we're increasingly competitive, both in the city and in relation to our businesses because of the de-restriction, our ability to go out and do things in a less costly way. The second thing is that there will be, in the longer term, we will have a better ability to negotiate trade treaties. The, U the EU has an absolutely rotten record of trade treaties. 63% is, is the number that the UK has. Whatever it is, 69 and 77 are respectively those that Australia and Canada have, two independent nations. Interesting how Australia comes back again and again. And incidentally, one of the things Australia does extremely well, and I'm half Australian, is that they control 
their borders effectively with a visa system which seems to work very sensibly. Finally, I say this. I go back to what I said at the beginning of my, uh, my, my, my proposals, and that is we are a great nation. We are a great power. We are the fifth largest economy in the world. And we do many, many things better than anyone else in the world. And as I said before, very few of these have anything to do with our membership of the EU. That will not go away. And we will go on and we will prosper when we leave. Thank you very much. Now, um, uh, I'll just make one, one remark. Uh, I think this has been an excellent debate. And it's been an excellent debate because everybody uh, has been putting things in positive terms. There's only been a tiny bit of scaremongering, scaremongering about hundreds of thousands of Turks flooding into the UK, scaremongering about a war happening if we, uh, if we leave the EU. I don't believe either of those things for a moment. But in general, I think we've heard a positive case put from both sides with great cogency and vigour, and indeed even from Sir Geoffrey Nice, a degree of passion, uh, which I think was only appropriate in, in a debate like this. So thank you very much indeed, all four of you. Uh, thank you for coming, and please do, as you leave, cast your leaving votes. For more information, please go to the Gresham College website, www.gresham.ac.uk.